Welcome to the Wadsworth Public Library podcast. This episode is the third in a six-part series covering the history, stories, landmarks, and traditions of Wadsworth, Ohio. This live-recorded presentation is of local historian Roger Havens as he walks us through the book Wadsworth Heritage by Eleanor Shapiro. If this is your first time listening, be sure to check out the previous episodes in this series as the class moves chronologically through history and builds off the previous subjects. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue here. I'm going to do this as fast as I can today. I would like to get out a little bit, out of here a little bit after 7. Isham School's having a kind of a reunion down there until 7.30, so I want to... And don't, don't ask me what the reunion's all about. I'm kind of confused myself. But the old Isham School, uh, if it would still be standing, it would be 100 years old but obviously it's torn down. So they're celebrating the 100th, and it wasn't called Isham School until 1957 when Mr. Isham, who was going to take over the school as far as it being part of the city schools rather than the county school or the township school, he had a heart attack and died. So he never really got to run the Isham School. So they named it Isham School instead of the Wadsworth uh, Township School. So anyway, I guess that's what they are hanging their hats on at this point. Okay, so uh, you missed some of these uh, slides from this PowerPoint. So on these slides, I'll go through them quickly since I got to see them last time, but you didn't because I didn't realize they weren't being projected up on the screen, and they still haven't quite figured out what happened. So this was the first downtown brick building that's still there today and this is the old IOOF building and today Unwind is in this side of it and that uniquely crafted or whatever that store is. It's the old uh, Benjamin Franklin store that's the way I remembered it before they moved into their new building over on High Street. So just to put it in perspective and this was a three-story high building which was uh, all the others are two-story building so that's the tallest building downtown well besides across the street i forgot about the legion across the street which is this one so this was built right around 1868 i think they started right after the civil war and this was 1874 and this was originally a print shop that printed the wadsworth enterprise newspaper and another kids monthly magazine called the Young People's Gem, G-E-M. Anyway, there's a whole story about that. I'm going to skip over, but I'll show you where it is in the book because, again, it's like talking about coal mines. We could spend an hour or two just talking about this uh, young, or young folks' gem. I'm sorry, I think I said it wrong. But amazingly enough, in that print shop back in the early 1870s, they printed this monthly kids' newsletter, kind of the equivalence to the Highlights magazine of long ago. And it got up to a circulation of 300,000. And that's amazing in itself back in the 1870s to have a newspaper with that circulation. And I keep learning more and more about this newspaper because they, they did some knockoffs on it. So if you're looking on eBay, you might be able to find an old uh, young folks gem for sale. And then... They had another one called the Tidal Wave in 1874. And then somebody dropped a newspaper off the other day 
That was even a third title all associated with this thing. I guess they thought that uh, because the Young Folks Gem was so lucrative that there were knockoffs just like we do in today's world. And so other newspapers were coming out with the same scheme, and that is with the kids, if they bought a subscription, they got a free Courier and Ives picture of Little Daisy, or the bo or uh, whether it's the boys or girls got Little Daisy, the other one was Little Manly. And again, they're old Courier and Ives from the 1870s, and they would get a print of that free if they bought a subscription for 25 cents a year. And if they sold another subscription, then they got the Little Daisy print and whatever was first on the list of, well, you wouldn't call them gifts, I guess, prizes. So if they convinced their buddy, hey, go, go ahead and get this, their buddy got the Little Daisy print, but uh, the, the kid selling it also got credit for it, and he could get prize number one, which could have been a pen back in those days. Then if he sold two, then he got a pen and whatever prize number two was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and they'd go up to 20 different items. And the 20th item was an unabridged dictionary, which they had less words back then. So the dictionary was a lot smaller, I suppose. But they got that. And then all the 19 prizes prior to that they got. So they could hold off on it and send everything in all at once and get them all at once. And they called them clubs. So a kid could have a club and keep adding to their club. And that's how it got up to 300,000 subscriptions through, you know, kids going and asking grandma or grandpa to order one of these. And again, it's just like nowadays when they do fundraisers through the school, if the kid sells two items, they may get some kind of cheap uh, radio or something or a thumb drive or something free. And people think that the, this was the first time anybody came up with that scheme. So Wadsworth gets on the map for something else better than here recently. And um, so this is the original Union School. When they built it, it was a first through 11th grade, and it was right where CIS is today. And of course, uh, in the early 1900s, they added 12th grade, added another grade you had to attend. So there was one year back in the late 1900s, there was no graduating class. Those kids were all excited to go into 11th grade only to find out that they got another year tacked on. And then kindergarten, of course, didn't come in until I think the late 20s, 1920s, or into the early 1930s. But by then, the, the numbers kept expanding in the population. So to uh, alleviate the pressure in there, they built Old Lincoln and Old Franklin School, both in 1915. And at that time, um, those schools only had four classrooms. One first grade, one second grade, one third grade, one fourth grade in each. And took the neighborhood kids or whoever lived closest in the town to those. That's where they attended. And so they pulled the first through fourth out of the Union School. Then eventually, I'm not going to go through the whole history, but then they, they added on to those schools, doubled the size. So they went from four classrooms to eight classrooms. And at that time, they uh, sucked in fifth and sixth graders, sucked them out of there and put them into that building. So again, that's kind of the progress of the schools. They hauled that one down. And in, I think it was 1907 is when they built 
the newest school and of course that one at the time was well it's been every type of school imaginable so it was a first through 11th school then it eventually was a high school only that was a junior high school only then it was a middle school only now it's a intermediate school only so it's gone through the whole the whole route and then lastly this is just a picture of uh, oh i guess the reason i put it in there is you'll see this big bathtub here that was the horse trough so back in the um buggy days the horses could get their drink here notice they have a human drinking fountain so you could be drinking the same time your car could be drinking and now that tub is at the front of the museum if you ever wondered why we have a bathtub out front because we were going to get rid of it at one point and i said what is this bathtub doing back here in the back using up space and we found out it was the old horse trough and so now we have it planted in flowers so again that's in the front of the museum and that's why that's there and i can't really read what those stores were at the time i think this one is the old the old ziggy's lounge over by the citizens bank at the time and that shows i think 1874 dated in it so i had to use that to to help me date some of the buildings and now that uh, that topper is not there anymore hence the date is missing okay then again these are the slides we kind of jumped over talked about Walbach and how his photog photography studio was once in his house and his house is where the American Legion is today where that print shop ended up being built and he had this house his house moved up to the street on the corner of Boyer and High Street and it's still there today it has the big plate glass window in the front and it's where Durhammer used to operate his photography studio too and you can't see it but here in this wooded you can just barely see that is the first christian church there so it's across the street and that's the side view that's along boyers right there just to put it in perspective i mentioned in the last one about the south end factories that these factories which no longer exist but this is mechanic street that runs parallel right when you cross the railroad tracks and turn left at the first street so you had all these plants one of them made um, bed springs which doesn't sound like a big deal but back then compared to having used rope beds now people invented and actually it was some of the people that lived in wadsworth invented these bed springs and i'm not sure what they look like whether they were just like a rollaway bed with those springs in there or whether they were the the spiral springs but wherever they produced them one of these factories uh one one of those factories was an aluminum factory that made um cooking pots and pans and that type of thing and so there was a siding here where trains could pull off to the side unhook their their cars and have them loaded up and then they'd come back through and snatch them back up and take them away so when you cross the railroad tracks down at the south end, you used to cross the, um, the east 
tracks and the west tracks and then the siding track. So there's like, it was three thick down there. Now it's only one because the sidings are gone and the, the one track is both east and westbound. The farthest west it goes is to Morton Salt and then it stops. But they still haul a lot, a lot of cars. I mean, a car to each time, I think maybe four times a week that they're hauling salt out of there and taking them over to Barberton area to be redistributed to whoever's snatching them up and wherever they're going. But the original, which I do not have a picture of the original depot that was built there, but it burned down in the late 1800s, thinking that a spark from one of the um, steam engines came out and landed on the roof of it. And that was the end of it. And then the rail company wouldn't replace it. Their idea of replacing it is this is an old train car. <laughs> so they just got it off the tracks and set there and said, okay, that's your depot. But then finally they built the one that um, you guys may remember if you grew up in Wadsworth, the old wooden one, which that one, there was nothing fancy about it. They just kind of put it up because they got tired of hearing from people from Wadsworth saying how horrible the the depot was so you know it wasn't the fancy ones like you see in Ripman for instance and uh, you know that has all the gingerbread and that sort of thing it was just very plain and I uh, when they take it down I think in the mid-70s they finally just uh, removed it and let's see uh, the Hinsdale family in the um, old grounds of the cemeteries where the Hinsdale family was buried and um, they came in from the East Coast. I think they came from either New York or Vermont or whatever. And they settled up on Reimer Road. But they became a pretty affluent family, even though when they came out, they really had no money at all. So it ended up um, in this Hinsdale family that the one girl ended up being a teacher at one of the one-room schoolhouses. It appears she never married and she died early in life. Two of the boys ended up, well, actually, Burke ended up being the president of Hiram College. He was kind of the official first president of Hiram College because they had just changed their name. Prior to him, it was James A. Garfield that was the president of that. That was called Western Reserve Eclectic College or something. But they changed it to Hiram. He was good friends. Um with Burke and Burke took over from him and um, so that was our connection to James A. Garfield to a large degree and there another family member became state representative so Rolden Hinsdale and then Dr. Wilbert and Burke both ended up in the University of Michigan as professors so for these uh, Cowtown people they they made their impression. Plus, their their other brother, he's the one, George Hinsdale, and I don't have a picture of him because he died in the, well, in 1842, the same year that he was constructing. He, he designed and constructed both the First Mennonite Church and St. Mark's Church. And sadly, he was the first funeral in the first Christian church, called the Disciple Church back then where James A. Garfield was the um, preach there um, because that's what he studied to be a preacher. And then he went out in the field to do um, 
wherever he was needed that was associated with the disciple church, and Wadsworth was one of them at the time. So they had good bonds, and again, I think I mentioned here in the library they have letters that Burke Hinsdale wrote to James A. Garfield and vice versa, that during their lifetime they were in close correspondence. And um, so you can't, I don't believe you can check out that book, but you can visually check it out over in the history room if that's your interest. Oh, and then the Pardee family. So again, I'm trying to hit some of these uh, bigwigs in town. I don't know what names would appear if we would take this time and say, who were the movers and shakers in the 1980s in Wadsworth? But I'm kind of going back into, you know, shortly after the pioneers were here, who were the movers and shakers? And again, the Pardee family, hence Pardee Street, because they owned the property there. Grace Lutheran Church, that property was sold by Allen Pardee to the Lutherans. Well, anyway, so their connections are Aaron up here in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, he was the first mayor of Wadsworth, and he lived um, where Wat Watrusa Street is, there off of college. Don was his son, and Don lived out there at the Rock Cut out on Rhymer Road. And the Rock Cut is close to Bonita Road, where the cut is through the uh, rock, <laughs> or the little mountainside there. So he lived there on the left, had a huge house up there that sadly had to be hauled down because it was taken over by termites. And the guy went to save it, and it was not saveable. So he called that Vacation Ridge because he spent his the rest of his time, well, he would come up here in the summer to visit his parents. And he owned that farm, and he owned several you know, uh, farms out there as far as lots, so several acres. But he was mostly lived in Louisiana because he was a judge down there. And, um, and his wife had some kind of debilitating issue that she needed that type of weather as opposed to up here in this mess. So he'd come up and he would go to the vacation ridge is what he called it. And then he could ride his horse or be taken in on a buggy to visit Aaron who lived, his dad, who lived there across from St. Mark's Church. Then you have John and Alan, who are brothers to Aaron, they um, stuck around for the most part, but they built a lot of the buildings downtown, the wooden buildings, and most of them are gone. The only, only one still standing is Kelly Graham Insurance. And behind that uh, siding is the original wood to their structure. And that was built in the late 1830s. Then there was George, and he died before photography really came into being. So all I can do is show you his um, monument there in the old grounds. And again, he was the seventh son. So this is one brother, one brother, one brother, one brother. Some of the other brothers didn't come out from New York. Um, and some just uh, started out in Wadsworth and took off. But uh, So George was destined to be a doctor because he was the seventh son, and that's what superstition said. I think I mentioned that the last one. Sometimes I don't know whether I mentioned or not because I'm talking to other people and talking about cemetery things, but at least I'm tying it together. If you heard it a second time, you can at least see the face this time, not just me seeing the faces. So the Johnson House Museum, again, there were four doctors that once lived there. 
Uh, the very first person, Traver, we don't have a picture of him because he lived before photography, but he started out living in that house. It was built by the Beach family. Sylvia Beach, her older brother and dad built uh, the house. But anyway, so Traver worked or lived there because the factory was right across the street next to the Lutheran Church where the car wash is today, the buggy shop. So he just walked across the street and that was his business. But then after he moved on and he ended up moving down to Ashland and opening up a buggy shop down there, then we had Dr. Kranz who used that as kind of his doctor's I shouldn't say a doctor's office because nobody really came to that place. He went out into the field, but that's where he lived. Um, same with Dr. Ritter, did the same thing, did his medical practice. I mean, that's where people could knock on his door and say, we need you down the road. Um, Kranz is buried in the Woodlawn Cemetery. Ritter left, I think he went out to Indiana or somewhere and uh, passed away out there. Dr. Robert Johnson, he's the one that finally did an expansion to the house and put an actual office in there. And that's what you see today when you go down there. Is uh, So the back there at the kitchen, the kind of dining room area, and also, also the south side had additions put on. And so he's able to shift all that stuff out of the front of the house, and that's where he put in the office. Then, of course, his daughter eventually took over the practice, and she was the last to live there and to die there and her ghost does haunt that place so if you're in there don't get too freaked out if you see things undertakers in wadsworth i think this is well i may have hit on this so ephraim kremer on the left he had his place of business kind of where the city hall is today you know, Maple Street got all messed up when they put in the new the new city hall. They put the city hall on the lower part of Maple Street, so that's why there's a jog in the road, uh, because the Maple Street used to go right next to the museum. So Kramer was across the street where the old, I guess you would say more, it was the where the old civil uh, city hall was. But anyway, so he was a cabinet maker, coffin maker, and of course also an undertaker because that's what uh, cabinet makers did. And so allegedly he was more attracted or by the Democrats. So if you were a Democrat and died, they knew to take you to Kremer to have you processed <laughs> before burial. But if you're a Republican, you went to Dr. Wuchter and he was the one um, there by the Chinese restaurant on Main Street where that big gap is. So he had a wooden house there that eventually got hauled down, but he worked out of there. And ironically, I don't know if it, I think it was his daughter that eventually took over the house, but she would do piano lessons for kids in town. So it wasn't unusual for them to go to their piano lesson and look over there and a coffin would be set next to the piano. So they had to learn under that, those circumstances. So both those guys are buried down Woodlawn Cemetery and they both had holding vaults down there for in the winter time when they couldn't dig graves and they had to hold the body somewhere until the ground thawed enough. 
And I have a picture of one. Uh, it was the Wookter one. I never did come across of the Kramer one. No pictures. They don't have anything down at the cemetery. The only thing I could figure out is where the current office of that cemetery is could have been where one of the vaults was because there's nobody knows. Nothing was marked in the records down there. But I do have the picture. Was it just like a stone vault? Yeah, they were just a stone vault. And ironically, the reason they ended up taking down the Kramer one is they standardized the size of the coffins at one point in time. Well, the slots they had in there was too small, so they couldn't slide the coffins in any longer. So they had the thing hauled down, and Tommy Lucas, who was mayor of Wadsworth at one time, but probably more popular as being the marshal in town, he ended up buying it from them, took it apart block by block, and used it in some of his houses that he built on Lucas Court down here off of South Lyman. So they say those people who live there during the night, sometimes they hear these scratching sounds, sound like dead people trying to get out of coffins. So, and it, uh, because I don't think it's part of that cement wall that goes up there. You, you probably have never been up Lu Lucas Court unless you know somebody up there because it's just a dead end. But it starts out at the bottom of the hill, and you can see it from uh, South Lyman, that they have this cement wall that supposedly uh, Tommy Lucas put that in, but what he was doing was taking all these pistols and guns that they confiscated off of convicts, and he was sticking them in that wall as he was <laughs> cementing it up. So if somebody goes to tear that down, hopefully all those guns have safeties on them. <laughs> oh, and there's that, uh, there's a picture of that vault on the far right. That's the, that, that's the one vault that I have the top of it. Oh, no, I guess it's written there, but you can't read it. Uh, Woodlawn Cemetery is what that's supposed to say. Uh, unfortunately, his picture got over top of Woodlawn. But this is uh, Owen Brown. He's the one that donated the property for the Woodlawn Cemetery, the old grounds, the acre that starts here at College Street and goes to the very top and levels off. And uh, so he was the brother to Frederick Brown, who was the guy that was the first cabin downtown here where we're sitting today and started the first library. So that was his brother. Uh, this was Frederick Brown's infant daughters, the first death in downtown Wadsworth, 1817. So she was the first burial. And then the next year, they had twin children, and they died too. So there's actually three burials right there. Same yeah, Frederick Brown. So they started out kind of rough, but then they ended up having survivors, and, uh, and they were educated people, of course, um, like I said earlier. And I think I mentioned before about how uh, especially those holding vaults were important because um, some of them requested that their, the body be put in those holding vaults for several weeks until the body started uh, rotting away, because otherwise they'd have been susceptible to the body snatchers, or the resurrectionists is what they called them. So removing a fresh corpse so it could be used at the um, medical schools, which that George Pardee was one of those people that could have done 
what they're saying, told their students, you bring in a body, no questions asked, and you can work on an actual cadaver. But just don't tell me where they came from, and uh, don't tell me where they ended up. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the book here, and um, because I'm going to buzz down through a few of these things. I think I talked, well, I talked earlier about the Young Folks Gym. This kid on the left-hand side, he's the one that started the Young Folks Gym. George Bennett, he's buried out at Western Star Cemetery. Right through the gate, a little bit to the right, he and his parents are buried. Here's a picture of the cover of that Young Folks Gym. Size of it was like uh, 11 by 14, a little bit bigger than... I can just barely fit it on my scanner, let's put it that way. I have to really adjust it to, to catch the whole thing. And it was eight pages each month, 25 cents per year. Uh, this was the upper part of Barlett's, or next to the American Legion. I said that that was the print shop. So this is in isolation, that print shop. And see, it had the fancy top and uh, Victorian-looking architecture, whatever you call that. Uh, that's all been removed when the American Legion got that building in the late 40s, early 50s. They had the whole facade hauled down, and that's why it's, it says American Legion all over it. and has stars and looks very patriotic. P.P. Cherry was the guy that edited his newspaper because George didn't have that, those capabilities, and he was one of his former students. So I think I'm getting up to the point. Okay, this is where we kind of left off, and I'm going to spin through a lot of this. Um, I'm going to go back in here just to show you where to read. you got to read about this young folks gem. It's, it's a gem. Page 97 in your book. Pages 97, 98, 99, 100, 101, 102, 103. So you can see they dedicated a lot of pages relative to this book. And again, you can read that in the history, but when it talks about the steam printing house, again, where Barlett's store is today, again, that's what I want to do is put this all in perspective because you would have never figured that out had I not told you because the facing's all torn off and... And then we get to uh, 103, it says the churches. And I just threw up, um, just put some, get a, some slides before I left here tonight. And again, I'm not going to go through all their history, but we talked about the McGregor Academy and how it was the octagonal building. And finally it shut down pretty much in 1870 when public schools came in. So it took care of the grades above sixth grade because before then the one-room schoolhouses only went to sixth grade and you had to go to an academy to fill in the gap if you were going off to college uh, so the academy filled the gap for a while then 1870 it went defunct and that's when the german reformed church which is trinity church today that's when they bought the um, octagonal academy so that was trinity church's first church when they uh, grew out of that then they built their first wooden structure and they moved this back over to north lyman street somewhere where it either decayed rotted away whatever it became a kind of a splinter church of some kind for a while 
And as you know, we, we continue to go through these splinter churches all the time in Wadsworth. You know, they're either meeting uh, in the schools or, you know, renting space somewhere. Right now, there's one in St. Mark's Church. So it's continued to be a church, but, uh, but it's not um, the um, Episcopalian Church. Anyway, so this uh, Sebastian Goss, he was one of the early preachers of these churches. So again, that's on page 104. Tells about how they bought the academy. Reverend S.C. Goss on page 103 or 105. That's a picture of him up there. <laughs> then they call it the Round Church. I mean, that building has been called about everything in the book. The Round Church, the Octagonal Church, the Wadsworth Academy, McGregor's Academy, Trinity, or not Trinity, but German Reformed Church, yeah, it has so many names, so don't let that throw you. It all comes down to this octagonal building, which I think looks neat, but it's gone. And then we get to the next one that you had a sneak peek. The Lutheran Church, eventually that was built over there at the corner of King Street and High Street. By the way, no kings lived on King Street. It was Anna King who married into the Pardee family, because the Pardees owned the property. So she married into it. She and her husband lived there and had a boarding house, one of those larger houses that was there that she rented rooms out to. And they end up, you know, having the street named after him. So no real kings, but last name King. And I put this picture on only because I thought it was appropriate that, see the, the bell tower, every Easter morning, they had a group, a music group, uh, church members, they would climb up into the tower and on Easter morning they would uh, play their instruments to welcome everybody into Easter morning. Right, Joe? You were probably preaching there at that time. <laughs> so then, of course, uh, in 1919 they opened up the new Grace Lutheran Church and I think in the in-between, because it was like four years when they hauled this down by the time they got this built because it was during World War I and supply chain was bad. <coughs> and I think during those years they held services down at the uh, match company in the uh, old gymnasium there on Garfield. But yeah, there's the crew that uh, they made their annual trek up through that tower and played for all to hear. So again, that's an interesting article too about the uh, Grace Lutheran and how they were supported financially with the very first church by John Cyberling, who was the father of the Cyberling brothers that started uh, Goodyear and then Cyberling Rubber Company. And they, of course, lived there where you get your corn, sweet corn during the summertime out there on Greenwich Road at the Cyberling farm. They actually lived in the, they call it the column house, the ones with the column in the front. So um, that's page 108, talking about Lutheran Church. 109 talks about the Catholic Church, which, of course, this is um, the, the Catholic Church. Catholics weren't real welcome in Wadsworth uh, at the very beginning, and so there was... The, if you were happened to be Catholic, you had to go over to Doylestown for your services. But then the railroad track came through in the 1860s. 
So the Irish who had come over uh, were recruited over in Ireland to come work building the canals over in the Acker and Barberton area. The canals were all done, so they were out looking for work, while their next step was to work for the railroad company. So when that happened, then these um, Irish Catholics came into Wadsworth and settled here, and so they needed a place to worship. So the one guy there on the right in front of his house, this was uh, the Gallagher house, and it's set pretty much where Sacred Heart is today, close to Fairlawn there on Broad Street, and he donated the property there to build the first Catholic church. Oh, and this house, by the way, and they don't tell you that in these, this book. So when they wanted to replace this with the modern day, the brick one, they tore this apart board by board, just like they were recycling it. And they rebuilt it, and it's in front of Old Overlook School at the corner of Durling and Broad Street. And it would be the southwest corner. So right there on the corner where the stoplight is, if you're going up the hill, it'd be on the right before you turn to go down Durling. That's how they recycled it into a house. Kind of also gives you a perspective, because if that's all the bigger the house that came out of it, that was the size of these churches originally. They probably weren't much bigger than this square footage area in this room, maybe a little bit more. Same with the old Lutheran church. So again, now you know probably something more than your neighbors don't know. Okay, so, uh, and I'm not going to hit all these churches, but this is where you could find the history of the churches. Uh, the First Baptist Church, I'll hit that one. So there it is in its origin there on the left, and it says, that's a postcard, and it says Mount Zion Baptist Church down along the bottom. And interesting enough, it has two doors, and with the Mennonite churches, the two doors meant that the men went in one side and the women went in the other side. Sometimes schoolhouses were set up that way, where the men and ladies were separated going in. So that was its original thing, and it was donations from some of the local churches in Wadsworth that had it built, and I think they did that to avoid the blacks from attending their church. Whatever the case may be, this finally morphed into this building that stands today, and you can see it's the same roof here. So they added the side, added this side, and it's still functioning there. I'm glad this postcard says what it says because some of the other postcards say the colored church. That's why they listed it. So again, if you're reading or want to know the history of it, so the Methodist church, this was their original church built, and the Hard family were carpenters, and they lived on Main Street, and they helped uh, construct this church because they were Methodists themselves. And this was located in the parking lot next to O.J. Work Auditorium, where the farmer's market is. It was in that parking lot. So it eventually got hauled down, and the brick one took its place in the same location. So again, this is where the farmer's market takes place in that parking lot. And when I went to school, they called it the Annex Building. It looked pretty cruddy back then. <laughs> It was, wasn't real nice inside, but um, we had study halls in there, and I think they had um, home ec and band. 
So it was just a building separated from the main building. The schools bought it. And interesting enough, when they did sell it or went to haul it down, they found some of these stained glass windows were still in there. They were just had plywood over top of them. So they removed them and gave them back to the church, and now they're on display there. So then the Methodist Church, of course, they hauled that one down, and they built their new one when they bought the property of E.J. Young Estate, and it was getting in pretty bad shape, and so they had it taken down and built today's Methodist Church. And again, E.J. Young, it was one of his sons that owned the Cotswold Cottage there along East Street there, um, next to uh, Dr. Warner, Alex McElvain, Strimple, that office house. It was in that parking lot next to it. So again, that was E.J. Young's, one of his sons. Another son lived across the street until he built the mansion up next to Old Overlook School. And the Disciple Church, I think I mentioned that several times. So the Disciple Church, again, this is where James A. Garfield preached. This is First Christian Church, believe it or not. Um, they put an addition to the front where the stoop used to be or the porch. Then, of course, they added about six more <laughs> extensions in the back. But interesting enough, you can kind of date these photos based on the windows because um, when it first started out, these windows were all rectangular. And they replaced them with the Gothic style, the pointing up to heaven all the way around. So the Methodist Church is mentioned there on page 112. Um, I'm going to rapidly go through these photos and just add anything to it. Like the Mennonite uh, College, which obviously I have it up here on the screen too, uh, it was started in 1868 and lasted till 1878, just 10 years before uh, it went out of commission. And that Carl Justice Van Der Schmiesen, he came from Germany to, uh, to head the thing. Again, this Mennonite college was the first Mennonite college in the United States. And when people say, oh, that's old Isham School, look at this. Does that look like an old Isham School? <laughs> I mean, that was hauled down a long time ago. But when they were taking Isham down, people kept complaining. They said, well, that was a Mennonite college. Well, again, that college was done, destroyed, and rebuilt from the ground up. Then you can see there below the Mennonite College, it's when they put an addition onto it, and the addition to the right was more of a dormitory for the people attending that college. It went from a Mennonite College to a, um, a two-year college, a normal school for people wanting to become teachers. And so it's separated from the Mennonites altogether. It was bought up from a guy that had a normal school down in Smithville, and he moved his headquarters up here. I think part of the deal was that the city or the township would put a dormitory on the side for the people to be able to live there and stay there. Uh, young folks gem on uh, the next picture page. And again, that George Bennett, that kid that started it. John Clark was the printer who printed it. On the next page, I have marked on mine, Barlett's Flower Shop. This is, you know, a drawing image of the photo. Uh, John Clark's name up there, again, the owner of the print shop, steam printing, and the editor of the Wadsworth Enterprise newspaper, which there are still 
copies of the Wadsworth Enterprise. It started in 1866. You can check the microfilm, although that microfilm's getting so delicate, you know, it's all on plastic film and it's, it's falling apart. So unfortunately, it's very hard to, to manage. But I'm hoping someday they contact the Ohio Connection, the Ohio Historical Society in Columbus, because they're the ones who did the original, putting it on microfilm. And I'm sure they have a copy. I think the University of Akron had a copy of them, too. Someday when they get desperate, hopefully they'll contact them and maybe get a copy. Okay, on the next page it shows Dr. Ennis Everhard. He was a dentist here in town. Uh, he lived uh, kind of across from CIS when the big houses went down the hill on the opposite, well, on both sides. But he was also a cousin of E.J. Young, and he pretty much ran the Ohio companies for E.J. Young. He was the um, money guy. So if not making enough money as a doctor, he sure made a lot of money working with his cousin on the Ohio companies. Uh, that Burke Aaron Hinsdale, I mentioned him earlier, that's a plaque that's at the University of Michigan, recognizing him as being one of their outstanding scholars. That St Stevenson Carriage Works, again, that was the one where the car wash is right across from the museum. And the old Fixler building next door to it that's now owned by Russ Corwin, he has that house all fixed up. But that would have been on the um, north end of that lot. Then the next page, the First Lutheran Church, I put that picture up earlier. And so, again, that church only housed maybe 100 people in the congregation. So... It looks impressive to me, like it's a huge structure, but when it came down to it, it only handled a little over 100 people, I believe. Then the Union School, again, where Central is today, built in 1869. It actually opened in 1870. And then the sheep sheds that were replaced by the Myers Block. The Myers Block is, I don't even know what's in it now. They're at the corner of College and High Street. It used to be where Hoagland's Hardware was along there, Dave Cordes's, uh watercolor studio. Spectrum used to be there at the very corner. Um, but that whole thing was, uh, they called it the sheep sheds. It was a, a wooden structure there. And in fact, if you look in the background, kind of along their roof line, you can see the old Lutheran church there. But the sheep sheds, they were just um, a wooden structure, kind of a low-lying thing and uh and i think there were like four businesses inside of it It was like wadsworth's first shopping mall that you go through the front door and i think there was a bar on one side and a barber uh, office in one so yeah they had a variety of things that you went through the main door and then branched out it got taken down when the myers built that building as a department store on the next page shows the west side of Main Street, and again on the far left of it, on this uh, line drawing, this was in the, I think the 1874 Atlas of um, Medina County. So the far left is the IOF building, or where the old Ben Franklin, the Unwind is today. Uh, follow your finger to the right. Oh, 
about halfway through that kind of uh, low profile build, lower profile building, you'll see a J.D. Ross. So that was a pharmacy even back in 1874. And I say that because eventually that was Rexall Drug, which where the Ritzman's family started out. And we have the apothecary that was in there for probably hundreds of years or a hundred years. And it's in the museum in the um, doctor's office area. And then clear to the right, you'll see it says watchmaker before you jump up into the little bit higher profile building. So again, that's Chuck's uh, pawn shop. It's the narrowest building in town. It's only 10, 10 foot wide at the entrance. And people say, well, that used to be an alleyway and they filled it up with that building. Somebody had the idea, hey, just put a roof on here. All right, you got walls on both sides. But I've never seen a picture anywhere where that's a hollowed out space. So it must have happened quickly after. Was it always the shoe shop? It used to, it was a jewelry shop for the most part, but then it turned into the cobbler shop. When they were asking me for this um, historic downtown Wadsworth thing, they wanted to know what these buildings were predominantly in their history. Because at first they wanted to know every business. I said, you know what? <laughs> Businesses come and go all the time. That's why I can't remember what's over in the Myers building. They just keep changing it out. But I said, I can tell you through its first probably 100 years of history, it was a jewelry shop or a clock shop. or a. So the Nolf brothers, Boyers owned it. The Nolf brothers, the Nolfs, I think, owned it up until about 1950. Then the cobbler guy went in, the central shoe. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not exact on dates, but eventually he went in there, and that lasted quite a while. And uh, now, of course, it's it has jewelry in there, but secondhand jewelry. Uh, but again, just putting in perspective on what that picture is, down at the bottom, or I have mine opened up sideways. So that's the south end. So what you're seeing there, to the very right of the last picture... This is where the depot would be. So the railroad tracks are right there. And you can see we're missing a lot of buildings there. They hauled at least two of them down in probably the 90s, right there along the creek. Um, Wayne's Barbershop's still there, but it's, it's on the other side of the creek there at the bottom. And those were candy stores, maybe little grocery stores and bars. All right, next page... Uh, uh, the Reverend Goss, he was associated with the Trinity Church. Dr. Ferdinand Falk, he's more associated with the old uh, stucco house that used to be up there in front of the high school. He was a relative of Jacob Miller who built that house. He's the one whose dad fought in the Civil War, was wounded at the Civil War, but came back home because the Civil War was over, or, or, he, or maybe he got released. And then uh, about a month later, he ended up dying just from the infections or whatever. But in the meantime, he at least produced a child. So that's why there's a Falk Avenue and that type of thing. Uh, E.G. Loomis down at the bottom left-hand side. He was the one who kind of started the lumber industry in Wadsworth when the trains first came through because they needed the lumber for the steam engines to run them. Then, of course, when... They all started converting over to coal. He had another natural gold mine here in the south end of Wadsworth. 
He sold the railroads coal. So he is probably one of the most instrumental people in keeping Wadsworth going forward when things were getting bad. Then it morphed into, because we had the train, we had the coal, so we had the energy, we had the transportation, and that's when the match and the injector grew up in the south end because it was a convenient place to put it. Uh, Dr. C.N. Lyman, he lived just up the street here across from the old post office on Broad Street. He's the third house from the parking lot over here on this side. So you have the, the all brick building, then you have that next house that has the rounded porch in the front. And then the next one, which isn't the most impressive structure in the world, but at the time they owned all this property from Lyman Street all the way down to Sacred Heart uh, School and up to at least North Street or, maybe, or closer to Akron Road to the north. So this was their old farm. Anyway, his dad kind of, dad and mom settled the place. He was George Lyman. And obviously Lyman Street when they developed it and Highland Avenue, that was part of the Lyman property. So he's buried in the old grounds down at the cemetery. So I have been working on this brochure that hopefully maybe at the next meeting I'll be able to distribute them if you're interested in them. And it's a guide to the old grounds of the Woodlawn Cemetery. So I've identified like 20 famous people of Wadsworth that's buried in there. I did identify all the, the veterans that are buried there. And just in that one acre plot, there's 40 veterans. Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War, and one Mexican War. And so you could take that brochure, start at uh, the bottom of Broad Street. It's all coded and start walking up the path in the center and you can find those tombstones. The Hinsdales are in there, the Lymans, the uh, Becks, the, well, in the first pioneers, they're up almost at the top of the hill. Sylvia Beaches are very close to the, the first pioneers. And it, it still amazes me about how it, it seems like everybody in that old grounds are all related. Um, because it was a small community and they all intermarried into the families that came out. In fact, I think a lot of them married cousins because there wasn't enough to go around. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anytime I research them, they'll mention, you know, well, their, their aunt and uncle is so-and-so lives over there, or buried over there. And I'm thinking, gosh, this whole thing I think, is composed of maybe a dozen families that are just all interrelated. Uh, the Wirtz Buggy Company... Well, that building started out at the corner where Dr. Guthrie's building is, just over here, the old Ladrick's building, Huntsberger building, whatever you want to call it. So there was a wooden structure there that they hauled down Main Street, went into Mill Street there to the right, and put. now there's a parking lot there behind that old bar that's still standing. So that's where the Wirtz Buggy Works, or that's where they built uh, buggies. And then eventually it turned into Plank Elevator. That uh, it, that was still around when I was a kid. And the Plank Elevator was a place you'd have your grain ground. They had like a grist mill type thing inside there. That's not why it's called Mill Street, by the way. I always thought that because that kind of mill milling operation was there. Mills was the name of the, guy, the family that lived at the corner just across the street from that. So Mills is more of a family name as opposed to this place that um, 
would mill things for ones. That log cabin, okay, when the sheep sheds went down, there was a big gap there at the corner, and so when uh, Benjamin Harrison was running for president, they built this uh, log cabin to promote him. Again, that's the northwest corner of College and High. Next one, next page, the, one of the early coal mines. Again, that's really a picture of the one out there at Akron Road at that, uh, at that church site. That was a huge mine operation. Uh, next page shows George Bennett. He, again, was the starter of that Young Folks gem. And then you have John Clark. He was the editor of the Wadsworth Enterprise, who also bought the Young Folks gem after George died in that horse accident where he got pitched from a horse and uh, ended up, I think, breaking his back and getting pneumonia and dying. Captain Walbach, he's the one whose house is still up there at the corner of uh, Boyer and High Street, was the town photographer. So some of these old pictures in here were taken by him. And then there's that van der Schmissen. He was the Mennonite College big giant head for a while, except I think his broken German didn't help him in working with English people that were teaching. Okay, now the next one always confused me as to where they took this picture. So it ended up they took this picture, I think, from the very top of the old Union School over here at uh, Central, down there. So that's looking down Mill Street. So if you would follow that street, that road, all the way to the top, today that's where Kaleidoscope Playground is, or where the old Grandview swim pool was. Just to, put, again, put it in perspective. So yeah, it says, looking west from the Union School along Mill Street in 1870. And again, it's kind of hard to put this, because I, I'm always trying to figure out what that first building, large building is. And uh, because back in there, in that area, is where the Aaron Pardee mansion, what they called a mansion, existed. And I don't know if that's in the far right. I mean, they just describe it as being off of College Street and set back off the road, which would take you down Watrusa. And then when they dismantled his house, eventually, they split it into thirds and had all three chunks along Watrusa on the west side of Watrusa. Only one chunk is left. The rest of them got torn down over the years. Okay, the second Reformed Church, and the Reformed Church was the German Reformed Church, Trinity Church. So that was their wooden structure. And again, when they hauled it down, they recycled it, built apartment, a huge house that was an apartment house over where uh, Derling Park's parking area is, which is next to the old um, church there. Christian Missionary Alliance. Now it's turning into a Ukrainian church. I drove by it one day and it had a sign that says future home of this Ukrainian church. And but I think it's always been that future home up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And, uh, and they're still not there. Okay, um, down at the bottom there, the first town hall was built in 1867. It also was on High Street. Probably, it would be just north of the Huntington Bank today. Our city hall hasn't moved that far distance from... <laughs> I mean, we're on our third city hall, and they were all kind of along that, that same route, close to Maple Street. 
Okay, the uh, page 113, the Congregationalist Church. That is St. Mark's Church, or was St. Mark's Church. 1842, constructed and designed by George Hinsdale, 28-year-old, who ended up dying after its construction. Uh, next page, the Disciple Church. We've talked uh, enough about it. And then they talked about the Emmanuel uh, High Church, which is out there by Silver Run Winery there on Eastern Road. And again, that was really the closest German-speaking church. And, you know, people from Wadsworth would travel out there on Sunday mornings to worship there. And again, that's horse and buggy horseback days. So eventually they wanted one closer to town, and hence we ended up with a couple of them. We ended up with the Trinity Church and Grace Lutheran. Not sure what the difference is, because then you had out towards Seville, now you had the Jerusalem Union German Church, and that was, that's the one out there on Acme Road, um, just at the top of the hill, a little bit farther to turn left. And it's still there, I mean, in a different form. It started out like these others, usually with a log cabin, eventually a clabbered-sided uh, church, and then eventually turned into brick. It's a Lutheran church. Yeah, it's Jerusalem Lutheran church, I think they call it. They may have another word in there. It could be Emmanuel. And then there was another Lutheran church, because I always wondered, I, I live out on Rawika Road, so I vote at the, the Guilford Township Grange Hall, which isn't far from me. But they had a cemetery there. Who would think a Grange Hall would have a cemetery? But it ended up there was a church that uh, occupied that building for a time. I guess the, that was a good place of any to bury their, their people. But it was a splinter group off the Lutheran Church. But again, that side of town was predominantly Mennonite, German, Swiss. They didn't mix with the Yankees. They were most closer to town. They either went south closer to Wayne County or went uh, to the west of town. Therefore, that's why you don't see many of the uh, other type of churches out there. That talks about the Old Order Mennonite Church, and I think I mentioned before about how they split. You have the very old order up there at the top of Mennonite Hill up on Seville Road, and then they had a disagreement. Uh, part of the congregation wanted to have Sunday school, the old Mennonites didn't want anything to do with Sunday school. They must have thought it was sacrilegious, which I find ironic. So then they built the church at the top of the hill, about a quarter of a mile. They're at the very peak of the hill. So that was the other Mennonite church. <laughs> yeah, it just never ceases to amaze me how that all pans out. And now I think they call it Bethel, which Bethel, I think, must be close to modern Mennonite ways. And of course, we have that Bethel church out on 57 right before you get to uh, River Sticks. And let's see, then we get into the schools on page 118. And so, you know, basically, our township was divided into 12 sections, and each section was required to have its own schoolhouse. Well, two of our sections, for whatever reason, they combined with other sections. So we only had 10 one-room schoolhouses spread throughout Wadsworth instead of 12. So it kind of talks about that. It talks about a guy that I finally looked up because uh, down at the bottom, page 118, 
third paragraph in that section, it says, or right, right under the developments of it, it says, it's noteworthy that the pupils in one of these district schools, which one is not known precisely, enjoyed the rare privilege of having the poet Edward Roland Sill. Does anybody know him? I didn't know him, but I looked it up, and, you know, he is, um, I, I think I did bring him up on Google search, and his name popped up, but he, uh, his book, book of poems was published, The Hermitage and Other Poems. Following his teaching in Wadsworth, he became superintendent in Cuyahoga Falls. Sill Middle School. Yeah, well, it wasn't the middle, it was junior high, and it's gone. Well, yeah, and it's gone. Yeah. yeah, I did look it up. It says the building closed in 2006. It was built in 1950. It was on Searle Street. See, that's why I write in my books. So I don't forget this stuff. But yeah, I found that interesting that uh, they made a big deal about him. I never heard of him, but uh, not that I sit around reading poetry all the time. Well, I grew up in the falls, so... Oh, okay, cool. That was of interest to me. Yeah, well, so he taught in one of the one-room schoolhouses. You can research and see if you can figure out which of the ten. But interesting enough, uh, the next part talks about the village school. Uh, so again, 1870, the Union School. But then if you look at um, the second paragraph, just a, well, it's only a sentence. It says, Miss Jenny Hard also taught a one-room school in South Wadsworth in 1869, I think it was located on Water Street. Somewhere I read it was on Water Street. I, I drove down through there, and I think I spotted which one would have been a schoolhouse. They did recently put an addition on the back, so it's not in the shape of a schoolhouse as such. But I'd never heard of it, so it'd been like two blocks within Old Franklin School. And the Hard family owned the property where the injector is today. And if any of you know um, Claire Jo Crumley, She's part of the Hard family. She and Gladys Bernard. She doesn't know much of her family history, but I do because they're, they have a genealogy type thing over in the museum. Anyway, to me, that's another discovery of a school that was here in Wadsworth. Um, Aaron Pardee, again, the first mayor, he was also the first president of the Board of Education in Wadsworth, 1870. So you keep coming across these same old names all the time. Okay, then after that, again, uh, oh, and interesting enough, on page 120, it talked about another person on the school board was J.D. Ross. So he was that um, pharmacist that was over there in that Ross building that we saw a picture of in that drawing. And it sounded like... He taught school for a while. It seemed like all these people did. Aaron Pardee taught school. That's where he met his wife. One of the Isles, E-Y-L-E-S. I guess you pronounce it Isles or Eels. And uh, George Lyman, C.N. Lyman's father, he taught school. It seemed like everybody started out their careers teaching school. Then you get over to page 121. talks about the Mennonite Church. I'm not going to go through it because it has a, even though it only lasts 10 years, uh, it has a lengthy history, and given, you know, significant pages in this history book because of its influence in our history. So, again, that's your area. talks about the faculty not getting along. They think it was that van der Schmissen that uh, was very strict. He didn't understand American culture. And But I can tell you that um, 
other interesting, and it won't tell you in here about it. So when those kids uh, or young men initially stayed there at the college, they had to work the grounds because at that time it was 30 acres, I think. So it was a farming area. They had to plant gardens, you know, to help support the school, blah, blah, blah. And their form of entertainment is, all I can figure is they cross College Street and would have walked down through the area of Memorial Park of today. Of course, back then it wouldn't have existed. And then went all the way down to the south end. And of course, the creek goes down there along State Street that goes to Ripman. And along that creek were all these um, mills. They had grist mills. They had um, lumber mills and things like that operating off that creek. Well, of course, at the actual mills, they don't feed directly off the creek. They would build ponds next to the creek so they could control the water flow. So a big storm can't wipe them out. They can shut it off their water supply. And they'd go down there and strip down and jump into those ponds and swim in them. And most of them didn't know how to swim. And so they would jump into the water and the embankments down into the mills were straight down. So once they jumped in, they were over their heads. And it was amazing how many went down there to, they probably wanted to have a free bath and they probably had to smell each other so much down there at the college. It's like, let's just go down there and everybody just clean up. And they were jumping in there and then they were going belly up and so they were dragging the bodies out. So that was kind of tragic that way, but uh, you know, I guess they just didn't understand. That's why now, of course, if you have a pond built on your property, you have to have a gradual all the way around the rim of your pond. It can't just go straight down. It, you know, starts out gradually. So kids, you know, that may wade into it, they're going to sink in the mud, but they're going to be able to crawl back out. Back then, I guess it was a way to thin the herd. So then it talks about what that uh, college turned into after that, the Deggs Collegiate Institute 124, 125 Western Reserve Normal College. So again, that takes us to 127. And interesting enough, that first paragraph under the 19th century war records, the Civil War, in that first paragraph, it talks about the one and only place that we know of that was an underground railroad in Wadsworth. So that's at the Turner Farm. And Grace Kuntz, if you happen to know her, she was like 100 when she died, and I think when she died back in the 80s. Anyway, she was related to the Turners, and this information was relayed to her through family connections. But anyway, if you want to know about our one and only that we're knowledge of. So it's on Diagonal Road, which is Route 57, uh, as you're headed towards River Sticks. And it's before you get to Blake Road. Well, unfortunately, somebody bought the place. And I think it was a young guy. And first thing he did is he had the barn torn down in the back. But the homestead is still there. So you'll see it if you drive out there. Before you get to Blake Road, out on 57. Maybe a quarter of a mile before you get to Blake. So the Turner family lived there. And the daughter of Turner, she married this... Uh, Hamilton, last name Hamilton, 
and they lived beyond Blake Road on the right-hand side, I guess where the old quarry pit was. And he preached at uh, like the Bethel Church down the road from him. And he evidently was a Democrat because he was in favor of slavery. Unbeknownst to him, his father-in-law is down the street and he's helping slaves to escape. <laughs> so it was a... And evidently, one time he was preaching there at that Bethel church, and he got on the subject of slavery, and again, he was pro-slavery. One of the parishioners stood up, and he said, Excuse me, sir, I fight for the Union Army. And he said, We get paid good money to kill people like you. <laughs> so I guess he ducked behind the pulpit, and uh, people escorted that guy out and escorted the preacher out, and that was the end of that. <laughs> but it's just interesting. So the Turners are buried down the old grounds. Unfortunately, his tombstone is missing, Alex. But his wife's tombstone is there, which isn't unusual. We're missing a lot of tombstones down there. So Wadsworth people, 42nd uh, OVI mostly is what the young men signed up for in this area. Oh, the thin blue line, that lists every one that uh, at, in 1964 that they were aware of that fought from Wadsworth in the Civil War. They're not all buried down in the cemetery, but close to 100 are. And uh, the one guy who led, led the parade, uh, the Memorial Day parade for like forever, died in 1940. His name was Clinton Waffle, like the waffle you eat. He grew up on a farm just north of uh, the Wadsworth border with Sharon. And he's buried, well, not buried, he's stuffed in the wall in the, the old mausoleum there on the grounds, the big mausoleum. And interesting, on page 131, talks about the Spanish-American War. And um, we had a group of men from Wadsworth that went over. They were with the 8th... Uh, regiment national guard so they got all the way to cuba they got all the way to santiago and they were up on a mountainside looking down i think looking down in, in savannah or santiago maybe it was santiago but anyway then the war ended so none of them fought there however unfortunately for them there were casualties of the war because yellow fever was rampant over there. They got bit by mosquitoes or whatever. They came home and they died. Uh, I don't know how many. Well, it says just in that National Guard, that regiment, 72 people died. Obviously, they were all, all weren't from Wadsworth, but during one of the Memorial Day services when I was down there in the cemetery standing there watching the program, I happened to look down at the tombstone next to me and it said uh, the guy was in you know, a Spanish-American War, and he died in 1898. And I'm thinking, 1898, that's when the battle, or the... And so I came back and did the research on him. He's the one that came home and died of yellow fever that he contracted there. So I know there's at least one there, and I'm sure there's, there's others. Okay, then on page 132, down at the bottom, 133, it talks about the relationship between the Pardee family, the Hinsdale family, 
the Hard family and the Isles family. Again, all these big families that are interrelated because they all married into one another. And I talked about Don Party and Julia Hard uh, living out there at the Rock Cut. Aaron, of course, living downtown. William Eels lived at the corner of uh, Akron Road and Hartman Road where the second official schoolhouse was built, log cabin schoolhouse, on his property. And that's the one that Aaron Pardee taught there, so the school would have been a neighbor to the Isles family, and that's where he met his wife, so he married an Isles. <laughs> and again, they, and I'm not into tracking down all these um, interrelationships of these families, but it sure they sure come together after a while. But you can read all that, obviously, on your own, and because it goes on page by page. They mention Sylvia Beach on page 134 because Mr. Isles, or Judge Isles, was the one who organized her search party because Sylvia Beach would have lived just to the west of the Isles, the intersection there, where the Haynes live. The Haynes family still lives there today as you're going up the hill coming into Wadsworth on Akron Road. So he was the neighbor and he led the search. And it talks about the Hinsdales and, well, the Hinsdales that I brought up attending elementary school at, they called it Stony Ridge School. And again, that's the, the one-room schoolhouse across from the key to my father's house, that brick one there. And again, because of the parties and the Hinsdales, connection with James A. Garfield, that's how Don Party kind of went up through the ranks pretty quickly because they were all friends at that point from uh, Garfield coming to Wadsworth uh, and preaching here. Uh, the Hinsdale farm, by the way, was kind of across from Rock Cut. Actually, I'm just going to say it's the Weatherstone area. That's where the Hinsdale farm was, just to put it in perspective. And then the one, the first hard family that came in, they were, once you go through the rock cut and you start going down the hill, you have Bonita Road on the right. That's where that log cabin that's over in Greenleaf Park is from. It was close to the corner of Bonita and Reimer Road. And that was the hard cabin. So you had the Hinsdales first, then you had the hard cabin. And there still exists, obviously. And that's how the Hard family got connected <laughs> to all this. So again, they were all neighbors. Hiram College, it talks about that on 138. And Dr. Gary Bernard, he always brags about the fact that he went to Hiram College. And you know, Roger, that's where James A. Garfield, yeah. But did you know that the Hinsdale, the first official president was from Wadsworth? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I said, well, now you can brag about two things that you went there for. Okay, I'm going to skip to 141, and it's talking about us becoming, this is book three. So we kind of went through the pioneer era, went through the coal mining era. Now we're turning into the industry stage of Wadsworth, so starting at late 1800s. And I think I made that comment that not much happened between 1840 and 1890. You know, people were just clearing land. They were farming. Not a big deal. There were small little factories, you know, or shops that came up. The city built up a little bit downtown, but it was a boring time. 
But then once you hit the late 80s and the early 90s, things start cranking up. That's when industry and that's when, you know, Akron was getting big and Cleveland was getting big and all these factories and we were pre-Rust Belt era and everything was, we were kind of the rich area of Ohio that things were just bustling and growing. So uh, the first company they talk about is the Wadsworth Salt Company and that salt company was located down the south end, get down to State Street there at the bottom of the hill where the stoplight is before you cross the railroad tracks. Turn right, you get to where Grandview comes out, and then right now there's a factory there, but the, you have all those warehouses down along that run there. That's where the Wadsworth Salt Company was. And Wadsworth Salt was known as the saltiest salt. That became their byline, and in fact, they were the saltiest salt. When they extracted the salt out of the ground, and the way they did that is they shot water down into the salt vein, and uh, I suspect hot water, and it dissolved the salt, and they sucked it back out, and then they evaporated it. And what was left, of course, would have been the salt. It's like making maple syrup, except they were extracting salt out of the ground. And when they boiled it down, it was like 99% pure. So it had very few impurities, which didn't have to be removed, or it could be used as table salt, and that you could eat it directly and not just use it as, uh, well, I'm going to say water softener salt, but of course they didn't have that back then. Like granulated salt that you would throw out on the ice or something like that. So it was so pure that it, it was more uh, grocery store shelf salt. So... Um, they prospered really good. All their factory, or their whole factory was like one great big wooden barn, or barn after barn after barn, all connected. I think it covered 20 acres down through there. And then the Depression hit in the late 1920s, and they had just gone through a, a phase where they were replacing all their evaporators somebody thought that they bought the wrong type of evaporator instead of a salt evaporator. They bought maple syrup evaporators, which didn't work the same way. So being hit by the depression and then a bad business transaction, they pretty much went bankrupt. And the first person to buy the place was E.J. Young to add to his wares. Plus he had the salt company down in Ritman. So that was one of the four Ohio companies. But I think he wanted to snatch it up because he didn't want competition. That was his whole life. He was like a John D. Rockefeller, wanted to buy up all, all the uh, competitors and uh, have a mon monopoly on things. So again, he bought it and he didn't do anything with it. But then suddenly, two months after he bought it, the whole complex went up in a fire. And the fire could be seen in, from Seville and Doylestown and all parts around because... Uh, again, it was an all-wooden structure that covered a massive amount of land. And so that was the end of that, and it just happened to happen right around Halloween. And they, I never did read what started the fire, except I read an article in the old newspapers back then, how these two youngsters disappeared that night. They lived over, I think, on Walnut Street or whatever. And they were about... Uh, sixth grade age, 
And you know, that sixth grade brain is starting to change. Anyway, they think that they may have broken in there and messed around with whatever inside the building and started the fire. And all I know is if you go down about this time in the evening and drive down along there on your way home, kind of look out for some ghostly images that are walking through that valley and they're young kids. So you may have seen who started the Wadsworth Salt Company fire. No, Chippewa Salt, if you see that sort of thing, that is the Morton Salt Company. Because years ago, we were in a Cracker Barrel restaurant yeah. in Kentucky, and they had Chippewa Salt in yeah. Ohio. Oh, yeah. And you can find those, like, any day on eBay. Just uh, Google Wadsworth, Ohio. Those salt bags always come up. Yeah, this was a sign. Oh, was it a yellow one? Yes. Oh, yeah. And I saw one online one time. Well, anyway, those are still in existence, too. But Chippewa Salt, and I'm glad you bring it up because I was confused at the beginning. So Wadsworth Salt Company just says Wadsworth Salt. It didn't. The only thing that distinguished it was their logo about the saltiest salt. And we only have one bag over in the museum. We have it in a frame that says Wadsworth Salt Company on all the rest say Chippewa, but Chippewa comes from the name of Chippewa Creek down in Ripman, and that's where the plant was. E.J. Rational, well, he had two reasons to move or start his salt company down there. Number one, if you notice where they started out, well, most of Ripman is a swamp to begin with. A lot of water, let's put it that way. So in that area, there was a lot of water that they could use to pump down and dissolve the salt. So he knew that the water supply was a lot better down there. The other reason was it also, you know, our train, our set of tracks go through Ripman. So ours is the east-west, but then there's a north-south that goes through Ripman. So there he was able to work with them or to have these two different rail lines to bid against each other to get his business because he had two sets of rails, again, and that's what Rockefeller would do. Well, then after a while, Rockefeller just bought the train company, or the trains, but initially they would pit them up against each other to the point where they're not even making money, but they weren't going to allow the other rail system to get it. So that's good you brought that up, and again, I just concluded that the Chippewa salt was because of Chippewa Creek going down through there, which is major. And if you haven't been down there, this is a little advertised for that. So there's a, a nature preserve that was built on the old Ohio Boxboard property, which is what you get to before you get to the salt company going in on State Street. So the city finally got that land, which they were able to apply for the um, grants to have the EPA clean it up. They left that box board open for years, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 years after it closed, but they didn't officially close it. What they did is they stationed a guard there. It was cheaper for them to pay a guard to be on that abandoned property than it would have been for EPA to go in there and clean it up and send them the bill. But then once the city got it, they got more access to the grants, which wasn't costing them anything. 
And it's a beautiful preserve down there. If you haven't been down there, it is, it's incredible. There's three different entrances to it. So the way to get there is go down State Street and the old Hardee's there or the, now it's a Mexican restaurant, um, there where the light is before you get into Ritman. And if you turn left, you're going underneath the railroad tracks. But immediately after you get under the railroad tracks, turn to the right and go down there, yeah, maybe a quarter of a mile. And there's entrance number one to the park. And you'll see this huge lake. And they call it um, Kayak Lake. And it's not very deep. And it always gets me when I pull in there and show people. And you're, you're met with a sign that says, um, no pets, no fishing, no swimming, no bicycles, and then have a good day. <laughs> so what they do, it's walking trails only, and you can walk around that lake. I haven't done that yet. I mean, it's huge. If you look across the lake, you'll see the salt company. And then if you don't like that entrance, you can go back out onto that uh, side road and go down eh, maybe another quarter of a mile, half mile. And there's another entrance. And that one leads you to the pavilion, which I haven't done yet, because there's a hill down there. And they call it Mount Rittman. <laughs> because there shouldn't be a hill there. Well, it's the old pulp from the box board or the waste of the pulp or the you know, after grinding the trees up and making the pulp. And they use that to build the mountain. There's a pavilion up there with a United States flag. It's like uh, Sarabachi. Yeah, so that one you would take to get up to there, to that pavilion, and sit up there and get the views. And then the other entrance, you have to go back out on 57. And right when you cross Chippewa Creek on 57, or is it, or the railroad track, which is next to Chippewa Creek, then you'll see this entrance. I don't know if you've been down 57, you'll wonder, why does that say park entrance? And it just opened a couple of months ago. So that one, that's a nice walk. It's uh, in the round, and you can actually see parts of it when you're driving along there. But it's just a nice flat walk if you need the exercise or you're looking for a place that's flat. But I, I've yet to climb Mount Rittman. I'm waiting for that uh, great day to get out and do that. The easiest way, or at least where two entrances are, is go down here at the south end, down before the railroad tracks, turn right on State Street. Mm -hmm. That goes to Rittman. And so as you're heading to Rittman, right before you get into Rittman, or probably right at the uh, city limits, there's a Mexican restaurant there. It used to be Hardy's uh, restaurant. That was like an ice cream place for a while, but now it's a Mexican restaurant. So at that light, just turn left. You're going underneath the rail track, a little trestle there. And once you get under there, it's like immediate right. Then just drive down there. There's really nothing down there except that. But if you're into kayaking, what's neat about it, and I've watched people do it, they have this kayak loader and unloader. And all you do is you set your kayak there, you jump on it uh, at the docks. It's on rollers, and you just kind of push and you roll off that platform and you're in the water. And when you come back, you just pick up a little speed and roll back up and out. No fishing though. Roger, at that pavilion, somebody has built a huge eagle's nest. What an eagle's nest would be like if it was up in the tree. Oh, okay. But it's on the ground. 
And oh. I have a stuffed eagle sitting in it. A dead one? No, stuffed animal. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think at that entrance, they're also putting a nature center back in there. Did you know that? It's like a barn and... Uh, so they'll have displays and things, although I don't understand because the only way you could get back there is to hike back in there. But it's not far from that second parking lot. Oh, okay. And, um, I haven't done it. I've been to the other two parking lots. That's the only one I didn't. And, I, and both times I'm trying to get up Mount Ripman, and the one off of 57, I would have had to swim across Chippewa Lake and then jump across the railroad tracks to get to it. So then I went back to the kayak place, and no, there's no, you could walk all the way around there. It looks like it's a couple of miles. Ribbon had a hiking program this summer. Okay. Or in the fall. Oh, good. If you hiked the trails 13 times, you got the hiking staff and the medallion. And did you get a walking pole so you can get up Mount Ritman? <laughs> yep. Well, that'd be... I mean, it looks pretty impressive. I mean, you've been up there. Oh. That's the only part I haven't walked. Yeah, I mean, when I'm standing there, I mean, I'm looking up there at the flag and however, however tall that is. So, I mean, it's not a small hill, although I'm sure it's gradual. I don't know. But anyway, it's all natural and you do see a lot of wildlife. Swans, geese, not that you're out to look for that, but... Uh, but ducks, and they list all the different wildlife that's back in there because, of course, they don't allow hunting or anything. All right, well, I'm not here to advertise for them. <laughs> and, again, I'm not going to go through all the details of the Ohio companies. Again, there were four, two of them in Wadsworth, two in Ritman. The one in Wadsworth, obviously, was the match company and the injector company. Uh, the buildings are still in existence going down to the south end of Wadsworth on both sides. And the, or the Ohio Salt Company, ironically, their office is where the Moose Club is today on Main Street. Going down the hill on the right-hand side, um, if you turn into Garfield, you'll turn into their driveway. So the Moose Company has above its door uh, engraved stone that says Ohio Salt Company, but it's covered up. Now it says the Wadsworth Moose. <laughs> But if you would take that plywood piece down above the uh, top of it, you'd see that that was the office. Well, I'll jump to another thing, and it's getting way off the subject. But um, So I attended that meeting last night with the future of Wadsworth Parks. So I guess it's kind of official now that uh, the city is looking to buy the old brickyard property. And on that brickyard property, they're going to put baseball diamonds in, or make it into a park with the emphasis of putting a lot of sports. That's going to be their sports complex. So they can eliminate like the baseball diamond at Durling Park, which is way too small. And of course, a, a home run could kill a tennis player that's <laughs> playing right next door to it. And I think the one at Grandview or Memorial Park, that softball field too, you know, where you hit a home run, it ends up in the lake because there's just not enough room. And especially like Durling Park has no parking. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure some neighbors have made it known that they don't appreciate. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I mean, uh, to me, that's a good solution of um, 
taking him out of there and putting it more in a, they call it the sports complex. Because at first I kept thinking they were going to build this big indoor facility, but their sports complex is taking land and putting uh, ballparks and tennis courts and, and all that stuff. But I think that's probably up online on the Wadsworth City uh, site and go to the thing on the park study. That to me was pretty impressive for them to do that. But again, I, I really have a feeling that um, Phil Stone owns that land. I went to school with him. He kept bragging about how he was going to sell this land and make all this money off of it. But I think what they found out is because an old factory was there, that there's EPA issues. So I think they're kind of going the route of Ripman did, is the city buys it, they can get those grants a lot easier and have federal monies clean up that property because I have a feeling that's probably why he couldn't sell it is because whoever would buy it would have to mitigate everything that's there. And you wouldn't think that a brickyard would have that, but I wouldn't think that a box board, you know, that produced cardboard would have all these EPA. Isn't there deep water, though, by the brickyard, too, a big lake? Uh, I mean, a deep lake. Yeah, but it's not deep. I remember now, and Phil thought it was deep when he bought it, and they went out there on, you know, little boats, rowboats and things. He said, it's amazing, Roger. Because everybody would say, oh, you know, there's all these cars that were stolen and driven into there. And he said, if a car would drive in there, you'd probably still see the top of the hood. So it really isn't that deep that everybody thought it was. But it still would be a safety thing because there's sheer walls there where they scooped out the, the clay and just left it like an old strip mine is what it looks like. And a lot of those strip mine lakes are not deep at all. And kids find those out the hard way, like over at Rogue's Hollow, there were a lot of those uh, mines there. And I remember a student I had at Valley View when he was a teenager, he and a bunch went over there. They dove into the water off the cliff. And guess what? It's only like four foot deep instead of checking it out. So, yeah, he never made it. And I think that's similar to there. So... So anyway, um, yes, yeah, people used to swim there, but I think it was more of a splash pond. It wasn't like the mills <laughs> where they jumped in, but I think they were climbing the rocks a little bit and then just splashing back in. But I'm sure there's ones that drowned there. So the Ohio Company starts out with the injector. And by the way, it started out across the railroad tracks. It was called the Garfield injector. And then when E.J. got involved and started his inventions and patenting different, um, the injectors, of course, were used with steam engines. So trains and steam engines even used out at the brickyard. A lot of those diggers were steam engine driven. So they made the injectors. And then when steam engines went out of style and those injectors weren't needed as much, he switched it over to valves, and valves are the things you turn the knobs to. And if you think about that as a business, you're thinking, gosh, what's a business just making turn on off valves? Then you think of how many you have in your house, number one. Think how many go into the factories. And then think of the World War 
two especially, they allowed the injector to work a full 24 hour uh, a day thing. They were providing the valves for the submarines, the ships, and so they got an, uh, uh, that E award, I think they called it. And if you got an E award for your factory, that meant that you were very patriotic in keeping it open because a lot of the factories would have to shut, shut down. They wanted them to save electric. And so with the match too, because matches were used so much to light everything everywhere. And so they also were allowed to stay. And that's what kept Wadsworth going. Whereas other factories had to shut down or be on limited amount of hours that they could use um, electric. And the match improved their, um, their matches because they hired a chemist. Actually, they hired it away from O.C. Barber over in the, the match company over in Barberton. And uh, his name was Hugo Shapiro, page 147. Do you recognize that name? Yeah, so his daughter-in-law is the author of this book. And he lived in the house next to the old Holmesbrook there on College Street across from the cemetery, that house with the turret. That was the Shapiro house that is sadly going into disrepair. One of the ones that's in the uh, book that uh, Ms. Bianco did, Marla did on uh, the historic houses of Wadsworth. So just to put him in perspective, but he's the one that worked on all the, I mean, matches are very, uh, well, it was very important because initially they were using product that was poisonous to humans. And then they finally got that sorted out. And then they had to create matches that wouldn't ignite when rubbed together. Because when they're being transported and being jiggled around, they didn't want them to ignite that way. So that's why they put the sandpaper strip on the side so that there's a chemical in that strip that matches, reacts with the chemical on the match tip. And only that could be used to light those matches, that combination. Which I don't understand because we used to light those things on our zippers all the time, <laughs> the <laughs> stick matches. Or if you're really good and you threw a stick match at an angle onto the sidewalk, you could light it that way. So I'm not sure, you know, those were supposed to be the safety matches. Well, some little kids found out the hard way that lighting them on your zipper is not the way to go. <laughs> so again, read those on your own. Uh, the Ohio Salt Company down in Ritman, the Ohio Box Board. Again, E.J. Young wanted to own all means of production. So when he got ticked off because uh, he was having containers made by somebody else and they kept raising the price, the heck with them. I'm going to start my own company, and that's what the box board was, shipping containers for both the um, matches and also the, um, the paper fold-up matches. He printed all those, although I think he printed those down in the plant here in Wadsworth. But, yeah, he had its own print shop. So the box board provided that and the containers to put the salt in. I have read, and I don't know if this is true, that it was E.J. Young who invented the round cylinder salt containers that, you know, Morton Salt still uses today. So the cylinder things, because Wadsworth Salt Company never put their salt in those cylinder 
cardboard shake things. Theirs was all in cloth bags, and that's what we have there in the museum, and that's what they use down at the, the other place, especially when they ship quantity. But the round containers, I've tried to research it, and I can't find where E.J. Young is associated with it, but anyway. And then at one point, he sent his people around to the south end from the match company the, to the railroad tracks and those houses along there. And he, he had his people out there seeing whether people that lived in those houses wanted to sell their house. You know, what would it take for you to sell me this house and make you feel like... And once he started doing that, well, he had the paparazzi on there trying to figure out what's going on here. And this guy's associated to E.J. Young. Well, he was debating about building his own rubber company down in that section. And then when people heard that, they jacked their, <laughs> priced their houses up. And so he got ticked off and he said, no, I'm pulling that whole idea and it isn't going to happen. He's not going to do his own rubber company. He said, if you people are that greedy, I give you all these jobs in town that you're working at. And then when I need a favor to purchase your house, then suddenly you want to jack me around and I just won't do it. Which was probably a good move for him because of the rubber companies being so. I mean, we had a rubber company in town down at the end of First Street, the XL Rubber Company that that guy, last name was Trump. He's buried in front of the mausoleum, the big mausoleum down to, but Ross Trump, and in fact his son just died a couple of years ago and he was like 100 years old. His father lived in the, the Trump house is the one up here on High Street that you get up there to the, um, the medical center on the right-hand side, that office complex, right where High Street makes a little bit of curve, just outside of the city, past the uh, Trinity Church. Past the Trinity Church, you come across the old, uh, what I just called the medical offices when they were built. Then you have the big house on opposite, that colonial house, all brick. He moved, uh, old man Trump, had two houses removed and taken down on Baldwin Street and down kind of at the bottom of the hill of Baldwin. He had those houses placed down there off of his lot so he could build that elongated house. And then he got into some issues that sound like they were stupid issues. I thought it was a result of the depression and that his rubber company had too much competition with the boys over in Akron that kind of put him out of business. But he ended up offing himself in the basement of that house after it was newly built. So if you're looking and buying, and I know it just sold here recently again, but I assume they have to do that disclosure form that uh, he shot himself in the basement. And it, well, some people call it the old Schaefer house. But it was really the Ross family that built it. Schaefer's eventually bought it. And again, Schaefer's the same name of the ones that had the stucco house up there by the high school. Uh, they were part of the Miller family. Anyway, and in its day, that was, I mean, it's still an impressive looking place. But that land went all the way back through the back to West Street. So it was like 20 acre property. And they had a pond there they called the Trump Pond. And it was spring fed. And in the early days of Wadsworth, the pioneer days, they would pump the water out of there through pipes to the people living here in the center of town. And that was their water supply. 
So he had a generator that he would start up, especially on Monday mornings, because what goes on on Mondays? Wash day. So he'd have to start those pumps up to allow enough water, and it was all gravity-fed from up there to downtown, and they ran it through wooden creosoted pipes, which I didn't know they had creosote back in those days. Now, can you imagine they have fits about lead pipes today? Imagine you drinking water that's been running through creosoted pipes, wooden pipes. <laughs> so that was the one pond. The other pond that fed Wadsworth was up on Akron Road at the old uh, Browse. On Akron Road, and I never even noticed a pond there before, and you can't see it. Pardon? Donors, yeah, the donor, close to Hain Farm, but on the south side of the road in Backlow. They were, yeah, they were all related at one time. But there is a pond, if you look quickly, you'll see an old kind of white farmhouse. There's no barn or anything left. And if you look carefully, you'll see a little presence of a pond there. And uh, so it's spring-fed, so it's always full. And that was the other one because that was up high enough that as you go down through town, the gravity would be a lot better than that one. So those are the two, and we have a section of that pipe over in the museum, the old pipe. But anyway, yeah, that the Trump house, and interesting enough, so again, he owned, and what is today the, or what, the old Barefoot Soul area. So the original building is still there. It's at the very back of the property along the railroad tracks. And that was the Trump XL Tire Company, or rubber company. And then it became the Barefoot Soul later on in life. And now it's the Goldstein building. And, but that's where Trump started out. And uh, oh, so after he died, and this what was weird is on that 20 acres, or at least part of that behind the Trump house, you had the pond, they put in a miniature golf course. And I'm thinking, a miniature golf course? What's that have to do with it? And that would have been, again, about eight, uh, 1930s, 1940s. Then they eventually got rid of it. And again, I'm trying to track this thinking. And it also served as an inn, so I think you could stay there. And I, I know in its recent history, it was kind of a nursing home there for a while when uh, what's-his-name owned it and took people in. So the miniature golf was closed because I, I figured they found out how many months can you use a miniature golf course? You know, like, you know, they used to have the one down in River Sticks. That was probably the closest one. That one, even in the best of days, was the worst of days because the mosquitoes down in the swamp. But um, so they closed that, and they then opened up an indoor miniature golf over in the Myers building that I talked about a little earlier, where Dave Cordes, that there on the corner of uh, High and College. So you started at uh, walk-in level, and I think there were nine holes in that area, I think on the south end of that building. And then you went downstairs and you golfed the other nine holes. And they had, you know, little, be like having a school carnival where we had set up putt-putt uh, golf things. But it, it was there permanently and people would go and golf. Again, what the heck does that have to do with the Trump family? Well, 
I've concluded that because after that went defunct, the Trumps still and the Aldifers, they were married into each other, and they still were in the rubber products over at uh, Wingfoot Lake. I think they had a place, a rubber company over there. What is artificial grass made out of? A rubber type based product. I think it was all about advertising that fake turf. In fact, I read where they even made golf balls, uh, their own golf balls for the thing. So again, it was, I think, all had to do with the rubber industry and because Mrs. Trump was an uh, Aldifer. And if you don't know the Aldifers, they were big in Sharon Center. And so the park up there, Wolf Creek Park, that was part of the Aldifer farm that they donated. And now that Ross Trump Jr. died over in Medina, he lived. And I don't know which house it is. You guys probably know, but it, on Route 18, as you're going into Medina and kind of going up the hill, he had like a hundred acre farm there and maybe more that he has donated to the Medina County Parks. So the whole family, it seems like when they die, they give their property to the Medina County Parks. It happened at Wolf Creek and next to Wolf Creek, um, well, that, she, was a, she was related to them and she donated all her property to them. That's why Wolf Creek is so large. And they lived in that huge house on the Sharon Center Circle. As you're going north on 94 and you get to the circle and you go around and then go straight, the house there on the left that used to have a gift shop there that you could stop at. That was the Aldifers. And they must have owned all that property along 94 north of it. And they gave it to the uh, county parks and Ross Jr., although he, he never married, so he really didn't have anybody to give his money or land and property. But it's evidently the house has a big turret on it. Has anybody seen? I haven't driven over there to really look at the but the oh they had a tour of because right now there are a bunch of like lawyers and stuff in there and oh you're talking about the one around the circle yeah but he lived on 18 you know do you take 94 all the way out to 18 and turn left or turn west and you go under 71 and keep going so then you're eventually going up the hill and evidently off to the right is the Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but he just donated it outright, and uh, now he died a couple of years ago. And the reason I picked up all this information is we're finally getting things from Ross that, uh, and all he had was caretakers, and they've been sorting out his estate, and they brought a couple of boxes of things to the museum and said this sounds more appropriate to be in Wadsworth. And he would stop by the museum every once in a while to drop things off while he was still alive. In fact, one thing he dropped off, which I know it went way too much over time, he donated a quilt that the Waltz family, or Mrs. Waltz, who the Waltz is actually the high church out there. Originally, that was called the Waltz Church. So Germans coming in, settling here. Some of them lived here on uh, High Street. So she sewed this quilt. Her husband had done the or decided on the pattern for it and so she hand sewed it 
it looks absolutely brand new and they did it for the 100th anniversary of the United States, 1876. And the thing is in perfect condition, never used. And somehow Ross Trump ended up with, I'm sure he was related to the waltzes too. <laughs> they were all related. But, um, but then that's where I came across those photographs of the indoor miniature golf course over there. And I started putting it all together because we'd had newspaper articles, but nothing made sense. But again, it started out as an outdoor thing behind that house. And like I said, I just assumed that they found out, hey, they can, they can only advertise it a couple of months out of the year, put it inside, and then they could be all year, and they could send agents or people inquiring about it over there to check it out. And it was just a new product on the market. Well, and behind that house, you're talking, I'm talking about the big brick on the, yeah. on the curve. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, there was also a chicken coop back there, which about 25 or so years ago was turned into apartments. And they're no longer there, but I know somebody that lived in one of those apartments. Yeah, yeah I heard about those, and, and people my age, I n never remember even seeing that pond as a kid. But a lot of people hung out there because there was just a small fence, I think, that divided it off. And I'd heard at one time that when they wanted to get rid of it before the Schaefers got it, they offered to sell it to the city of Wadsworth so they could put a park there. Because again, it extended from High Street all the way back to West Street. Didn't they go ice skating on that pond at the Schaefers pond? Not this year. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think of those things, and it's been a few years. Well, I guess last year it did get cold enough to ice skate, but it's a rarity now to go ice skating because it just doesn't freeze over that much. And then if you're talking about a spring-fed pond, you really have to be careful. They don't freeze over easily. And it's the same thing with the pond. I mean, there were three, well, probably four ponds if you include the brickyard, except that would have been functioning. But you had the pond at Schaefer's. You had the pond up next to Valley View School down behind the Parmleys and the halls down in the valley. There was a pond there before it got filled in, and then they built the school right next to it. Then the last school, they went to <laughs> build it, and they couldn't figure out why they were running into so much rubble. They should have checked with the Historical Society and said, do you know anything about that property? Oh, yeah, there used to be a pond there. People said they used to skate there. Oh, what happened to it? It got filled in. That's what you're trying to dig through right now. And then the other one was at AC Field there across from the bowling alley on College Street. That used to be a racetrack, and in the center was a pond. And so that would freeze over, or and during the winter they would cut ice out and store it and sell it during the summertime. So those are the three ponds, plus the mill ponds down along State Street, too, that people would ice skate on. We skated on Memorial Park. Oh, yeah, and Memorial Park, of course. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and would like to thank you for listening. You can contact us or find more information on this topic, as well as many other resources, at wadsworthlibrary.com.